0: Ultimately, you know, you should just go in and like, I mean, this should really not be more than like 15 minutes or something. Like it's just, you're just going to get like one sentence on each of these things. Am right? I? Yeah. I don't
1: know. <laughs> How much editing do you think I'm going to do this?
0: Can we just chop
1: your sentences? I know.
0: Especially because I, re- I speak in sentences that are like three minutes long. <laughs> I realized at one point I'm like, okay, you've you've now been speaking for two minutes without breathing. That's not going to be helpful when Tim goes to edit.
1: This is Tim, and this isn't going to be one of our regular Work Shouldn't Suck episodes. Well, at one point it was going to be, and then a few things changed in unexpected ways. It happened this week that the world lost an amazing light of a human. Diane Ragsdale was a generous friend, a brilliant colleague, a fun collaborator, and actually technically my boss for three of my faculty appointments over the years. The Cultural Leadership Program at the Banff Center for Arts and Creativity in Canada, the Arts Entrepreneurship and Leadership Program at the New School in New York City, and most recently, the new Creative Leadership Program she helped launch at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. What follows is a conversation Diane and I recorded at the Banff Center in February 2020. Yes, that February 2020, a few weeks before the world shut down for the global pandemic, and then we've Probably forgot we even recorded this conversation together. I only remembered it 2 days ago and fortunately found the files buried deep in my digital drive before editing it together into this version. It's now a time capsule filled with Diane's reflections and has taken on different meaning for me since her passing. Editing it was like getting the chance to have one more conversation with a friend. To hear Diane's excitement, hear how she was wrestling with ideas, Hear her brilliant mind work in real time. For those who knew Diane, you know she was passionate, amazing, and kind. She was so energetic and enthusiastic about ideas and learning. On more than a few occasions, as we tossed around ideas and projects, she would shout, Yes! and point repeatedly and excitedly, like, Yes, that's the idea we need to explore, or You should totally do that thing, or You should record a podcast about that, Tim. The crafting Insights and care Diane brought to every offering she undertook and every person who was involved in them was and continues to be truly inspiring. And oh my gosh, Diane lived at her learning edge. It was next level. And that's actually what this conversation was and is all about. Our original title for it was going to be Investing in Personal and Professional Growth. Spending the last day listening to her voice after learning of her passing was comforting. And knowing we won't have another spirited chat like this is heartbreaking. To hear her voice again, like we were riffing over a glass of wine. To hear about what she found intellectually stimulating at the moment. To hear about her thoughts on the role of arts and artists in society. The role arts management and leadership programs can and should play. And how we can craft our own learning and development plan. All are cherished moments now. And I'm so glad this recording includes things we thought would be outtakes, too. Laughing about the silliness of me trying to edit this conversation, for instance. It's one of the highlights of my career that I was able to work with Diane in various capacities over the years. Just last week, we were strategizing fun new things to work on together, which is even more so why her sudden and unexpected departure will take time to process, as I know it will for countless others who knew her. Sending love and strength to her family and friends, students and colleagues who are all over the world. now, one more conversation with Diane Ragsdale. Diane, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Tim.
1: All right, diane, let's start with your professional journey. <laughs> what did a young Diane Ragsdale want to be when she grew up?
0: yeah, I evidently uh, I had two competing goals. On the one hand, I evidently told my parents from a very young age that I really wanted to be a waitress at Denny's, What's <laughs> was my grand ambition. When I was a little bit older, that shifted to wanting to be a doctor, actually. So when I went to college, I was pre-med and realized pretty quickly that maybe it was just that I really liked my biology teacher in high school and I didn't really want to be a doctor. So I was pursuing a BS in psychology at Tulane where I went to college and also taking a bunch of theater courses, because I'd done theater in high school a bit, and got the bug and ended up with enough credits to get two degrees. So I had a degree in psychology and a degree in theater. And when I got to graduation, I thought, well, I'll audition for acting programs. And if I get in, that's what I'll do. And if I don't, I'll take a year, study for the MCATs, and maybe try to become a doctor with the goal of becoming a psychiatrist at that point when I realized I didn't really want to be a brain surgeon or whatever it was that I originally thought I might want to do. And I got into acting. I went to an MFA program, worked briefly as an actor in my 20s. One of my jobs was with an ensemble theater in Boise, Idaho, called Idaho Theater for Youth. Really fantastic company. And I came in, I acted with them, I directed a little bit with them, I wrote um a little show with them and taught kids how to juggle and all sorts of things and along the way they said, you know, would you like to be the marketing assistant? We need somebody to write press releases. I was like, sure. And not too long after they said, do you want to be the marketing director? And I said, I don't think I can do that because I don't know what marketing really is. You know, like, that's not my thing. And they're like, well, it's either that or we have to lay you off because we don't have enough money for a marketing assistant and a (laughs) marketing director. So I took on the marketing directing role, and that was really my full two-footed jump into arts administration, I think, at that point. And from there, I worked on turning around a struggling music festival up in Sandpoint, Idaho, And then I bounced around a bunch of different festivals, film festivals and music festivals, Sundance, Seattle Film Festival, Bumbershoot, which is in Seattle, WOMAD USA, which was Peter Gabriel's World Music Festival at the time, just doing contract work and really expanding my aesthetic and learning about a bunch of different kinds of jobs that exist in relationship to the production and consumption of the arts then had the chance to work with another organization that was struggling at the time called On the Boards, which is a contemporary performing arts center in Seattle. I was the managing director there, and with the artistic director, Lane Chaplinski, we helped that organization through a challenging period following a move into a new facility. And from there, I went to the Mellon Foundation in New York City and eventually became the program officer for theater and dance. I loved that job. I loved New York. I never wanted to leave. I met a Dutchman on a vacation in Amsterdam, and I ended up jumping the pond to marry him and went back to school to pursue a doctorate, which I still have not completed, which is really embarrassing to me. But in the meantime, been teaching quite a bit over the last decade at Erasmus University in Rotterdam, where I taught in the cultural economics department, and then in New York, at the New School, where I've been for the last few years, both as an assistant professor and helping to launch a new program in arts management and entrepreneurship for artists. I also, a few years ago, started working with the BAMP Center for Arts and Creativity, first as a facilitator slash, I guess, lecturer. And now I am the director of the Cultural Leadership Program, which I co-lead with a colleague named Alexia McKinnon.
1: I'll point out for our listeners that this might be the most majestic setting for the podcast recording we've ever had, because we are, in fact, in the Banff Center recording with the Rocky Mountains covered in snow right behind us.
0: Yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing. You can't look in any direction without seeing a Rocky Mountain, really, when you're up here. So yeah, lucky us.
1: It, it is by far the most distracting classroom ever to teach in. It's
0: yes, <laughs> because
1: you just find yourself staring out the window and then realize people are waiting for you to say something. Yeah. Several months ago, we had lunch together and you laid out your plan for the 2019-2020 professional development season, the personal Diane Ragsdale professional development season. Let's pretend we're back at that lunch. Mm-hmm. Hey, Diane. What do you have in the works for your professional development for this coming season?
0: Oh, my God. Tim, I'm so excited. Here's what I've got going. First, I'm going to do Patty Dye's Hard Conversations Around Race course. I'm then going to head up to Banff and do a course in Truth and Reconciliation through Right Relations, and then I'm going to do a 40-hour course in Mediation and Creative Conflict Resolution, which you turned me on to a year ago. So that's, I think, was the plan that I laid out for you. I remember at the time I was a little terrified thinking about getting into it, but felt deeply that it was something I had to do. If I was going to step into classrooms and meeting rooms of all sorts in the cultural sector, and feel like I could really hold space and speak or not speak with some degree of confidence and competency.
1: And you've completed all of those things, right? So this is in hindsight?
0: The Patty Dye course, this is a fantastic course. You can take all of it online, and there are a handful of sessions where everyone does a kind of synchronous online conversation with Patty and collaborators that she brings on, but the rest of it you can do at your own pace. It's videos, it's readings, it's exercises, it's conversation with community, and it's also really intense. She says when she's framing the course, we make it overwhelming because part of what we feel people need to go through is that experience of being overwhelmed by the truth of what has happened. And I was doing the course in the midst of a really intense period in which I was working about 70 to 80 hours a week between my full-time job at the new school and my job here at Banff. And at some point I realized I was doing some of these exercises and videos, you know, like trying to squeeze it in at the end of a long day. Or on weekends, cramming a few of them in. And and I thought, this isn't the way I want to do this. So I wrote to her and I said, can I go a little bit slower and take more time? And she said, yes, of course. So she keeps the content up there for about six months afterwards. And I actually have still a few remaining exercises that I need to do. But yeah, I'm largely finished with that course. And then I did complete the intensive in Truth and Reconciliation at BAMF. And I also did that terrifying 40-hour course (laughs) that you and I both did. (laughs) In mediation and uh, creative conflict resolution.
1: Since you said terrifying, we can talk about this one first and then maybe back up a little bit because we both, yes, completed the Center for Understanding and Conflict's intensive mediation program. For our listeners, this specific program uses a non-caucused approach. It's built around everyone being in the same room and not a mediator that's shuttling back and forth between parties in different rooms. And one of the things about this particular model is it is taught acknowledging that while a mediator is a neutral party, there's not a neutral impact on the mediator when they're mediating, particularly when they're doing really challenging cases, if you will, around whatever it might be. We both went through it. And then when you finished the program, you texted me to say, quote, it was awesome, terrifying at moments and exhausting. And I learned so much. And I read that text and I thought, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how yeah. I felt when I got to that
0: point, too. Well, the terrifying part is, unlike the other two courses, there was active role-playing every day. This was one where we're not just going to read this in a book and watch the pros do it. You're going to get in the hot seat in two ways. Sometimes you had to role-act a couple in divorce, which was required some significant, I thought, chops, and I have studied acting, and I was still a little (laughs) bit like, wow, this is hard. But the more terrifying part, of course, was when you had to step in and be the, the mediator. The learning the process and understanding what it really means, what they're teaching you is to be genuinely open and empathic with each party and hear each party and respond to each party and guide them through a process in which they shift from holding on to positions to going deeper and deeper into understanding what's underlying those positions their deeper needs and eventually making the turn to being able to creatively collaborate to find new solutions that will meet both parties needs and it's it's not an easy process it's time consuming and People are really complex, and the skills that it takes to to navigate a party in conflict through that process are just really high level.
1: Yeah. I had a headache every day. Every night I went home, and I stayed right there because it's so intensive. You're morning till night, and then you have a lot of readings and, and things you're studying for cases for the next day, and my brain just hurt. Because especially when you're in that role of the mediator and you're trying to hold these two parties and figure out how it can be useful.
0: Yeah. I'm so curious because you were the person that turned me on to that training. What led you to take it in the first place?
1: Previously, I'd done a lot of work researching different crucial or critical conversation models. So I went through the crucial conversation training and then subsequently became trained as a trainer to do that. I went through Fierce Conversation, Susan Scott's model. I went through difficult conversations with the Harvard Negotiation Project. And this was all in a an exploration to find a model that we could use at Fractured Atlas to use in parallel with our work around anti-racism, anti-oppression. Mm. So I went into an exploration to find out. I'd read the books, but I wanted to see if there was some kind of educational component that we could then use in the organization. And so that's how I got into it. And then I realized... Every meeting I was in felt like a conflict negotiation or a mediation with my HR hat on. You're, you're trying to thread this really thin needle, or maybe you're know, threading a thin needle might be uh, the wrong...
0: Yeah, I don't know if that's right.
1: It's probably not right. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I've may used a needle and thread.
0: Just threading any needle, I think, is...
1: it's true. Yeah. Is it's it so- difficult enough. So I felt like I need to figure out how to deepen my skills in this area because... I was not going to be able to level up my professional skills and my personal skills if I didn't do some more intensive work and was tipped off to this program by someone who is a trained mediator, has a background in HR, and said it's really great. That's all I knew of it. I showed up and there's like a room of 25 people. I think 22 of them were attorneys. Same with me. And then there are like three of us. I think two of us worked at nonprofits and I forget what the other person did. And I quickly was like, I just jumped into a deep end of a pool with people who do this for a living. And I used to play trombone. You know, it's
0: like, (laughs) that's great. And I remember at one point, I remember showing up at your office on my birthday one year for like a lunch and picking your brain on like, okay, if I could invest in any professional development in the next year, what do you think I should do? What was the most meaningful thing you've done? And you mentioned this course. And then I called and it was like they were already sold out or it had passed for the year. So I had to wait an entire year. And by the time that summer came, when I actually began to register for my fall of professional development, it was after having been in just a few too many rooms where I was doubting whether I was doing a good job of really holding space for the conversations that were emerging finding myself sitting and thinking, oh, I feel like I should say something, or maybe I shouldn't. I'm not sure. If I do speak, I'm not sure I know exactly the right thing to say. It wasn't just race issues, but certainly those were among the kinds of issues that were cropping up more and more in rooms. But more than anything, I think it was just that profound understanding that we've all grown to have over the last few years that there are growing cultural divides of all sorts, And I believe with others, I'm not alone in this, that cultural institutions are among the places in society that have the capacity to bring people together across those divides on equal terms, but we can't do it if we actually don't know how to hold space for that. And I was really curious in understanding that from the inside out and trying to first just figure out, well, like, how do I even do that in the smallest room, you know, much less on a much bigger scale? And in hindsight, I'm glad I did three back-to-back courses. There were great resonances, or, I guess, ways in which these three programs overlapped and spoke to one another. They all each had a kind of spiritual aspect to it, I would say, grounded, not necessarily in, certainly the mediation course is grounded in a, what I would call a Buddhist philosophy, truth and reconciliation course at Banff is grounded in an indigenous worldview and philosophy. And Patty Dye's course in racism also has spiritual components to it as well, based on the understanding that you have to make these changes from the inside out. They each have aspects in which you are required to deal with your own trauma, your own historic relationship to conflict. Before you can really begin to come into a room and think that you have some enlightened perspective, Starting with the idea that we each have to recognize where we have been already harmed or traumatized or affected by the way that we were raised and unpack that a bit. And I was really grateful for those deep dives in each of the courses as well.
1: I didn't know when I signed up for the mediation training that it had sort of roots in. Buddhist philosophy um, tradition, and it coincided with my own really seriousness in, in a meditative practice, where I was getting into actually meditating on a regular basis rather than 15 minutes here, and then three months later, maybe do it 10 minutes. That combination resonated in a really deep way, in a way that you realized when you're in a room and you don't know what to say, and you're searching for that, you seldom miss like my body is entirely tense and I'm not sure what, what's happening and I'm I'm not able to parse the facts and the stories and what is this telling me about myself. And it was a really helpful process to go through. The thing I'm thinking about as you're going through your own list here is like, you know, I need refreshers on these things because hmm. it's mm-hmm. been about a year or two that I've done several of these programs. Now I need to set time aside to do a refresher because I can, even though I use the skills, I'm starting to lose the, lose it in a way that would be nice to not have to go back through that 40-hour course, but how can I make sure that these are top of mind when I'm getting into challenging situations?
0: This is one thing I, I actually think about quite a bit. A few years ago, when I first came up to Banff, I had designed a course in beauty and aesthetics, ostensibly to teach ethics or kind of moral imagination to leaders business leaders, other leaders, and in designing the course, one of the challenges and differences from when I had done it once before at the University of Wisconsin-Madison was that the first iteration, when I taught it to seniors, undergrad, business majors, it was a 12- or 13-week course, whatever a typical term is, and so you had the hope of kind of building a practice, right? I curated aesthetic experiences, every week I gave them practices to engage in. And my hope was that by the end of the term, after doing this week after week after week, that something might stick and that they might actually continue the practice. And when I came and did it at Banff, it was a one week intensive. And as we all left at the end of the week, I thought, oh, I wonder if anyone will really be able to hold on to this in any meaningful way. Or is it two days from now or two weeks from now when it evaporates out the back of your mind and you stop using it. And in general, I think I'm curious about how you can turn these experiences into ongoing practices. The intense experience has value without a doubt. And then, yeah, like you, I'm kind of looking for what's the ongoing way to do this and whether that's staying in a community of some sort where you periodically come together and Talk about your experiences using these tools or something else, something you know much more every day.
1: One of the questions I wrestle with is how to make it stick mm-hmm. Fractured Alice, I've taught crucial conversations. It's a intensive two days. A lot of people come in with sort of a personal thing in mind. Maybe there's a conflict that they have with their roommate or a family member, not necessarily work related, and then they're processing that and then they address that. And then like three weeks later, they're back at work trying to coach them and like, oh, right, yeah, facts and stories. And you're like, oh, God, it lasts for a little while and then it just quickly falls off even when people are being coached. Mm -hmm. So I've been trying to figure out how we can make this part of just life because it's in everyone's best interest to communicate better. Yeah. And... I was talking to someone uh, about a year or so back and they're asking about crucial conversations and I I tipped them off to Orin Sofer's book about nonviolent communication combined with a meditative practice and came to realize that you really need a curriculum for like everyone in the organization can commit to for a year. Let's just become better communicators for 2020 and every month we'll do something different, but it'll help us. In life, certainly, and hopefully in life at the workplace.
0: I think that's a great idea. In fact, as I think about it, when I showed up asking for your advice on professional development, it was as much from wanting to be a better facilitator in various rooms, but also personally realizing that there were times when I felt I was not communicating as effectively as I wanted to, that I had a self righteous streak that would rise up once in a while, that I could be really impatient at times. And I've always been, I think, a sensitive person and a person with sometimes strong enthusiasm or passion for things. And combined, those can also create really fertile conditions for having your emotions right under the surface all the time and recognizing that walking around in life, I needed also better tools for how can I get better and better at being able to show up as a human, but not let the stress of the day, whether that's what's going on in the world or what's going on in the workplace, get to me in a way that I felt it was often getting to me. And I also took up meditation. Headspace was an app that my husband used and turned me on to, and I find it really valuable. So a couple of points. One, I think that most of these skills are deeply valuable for just day-to-day living and getting on in life in this insane time, as well as whatever we're going to do in the workplace and making us more effective communicators. But I love your idea of everyone in a company going through a year-long journey together. I think that would be, I think you should do that.
1: You know, when I teach, I have this slide, like the second slide when I'm teaching people centered organizational design or team design that says like, if you're working with humans trying to achieve something, there's something in here for you. And I think the same thing with if you're planning on communicating with anyone in life, and we probably all are, then there's something that we can all get from this and learn from this. And and at the same time, there's plenty of opportunity to practice.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. You know, look at Thanksgiving, all of the articles that come out around that time. Oh, everybody's getting ready to go home and see their family. Are you ready for the conversations you know, you're going to have in light of the political environment, et cetera? I use these skills all the time. I use them at home. I use them in the workplace, for sure, with students. And I believe that, particularly for people who are teaching in universities, I don't have much experience in K-12 through education, but I believe in the next few years, it's going to become kind of a minimum standard requirement to teach in a university or to work with adults in any way to have done these sorts of trainings and to have these sorts of skills. I can't imagine anymore being in a classroom without having had the opportunity to gain the perspectives I've gained from these trainings, also from tons of podcasts and books that you've turned me on to, other people have turned me on to. It's just becoming what you have to do. It should be considered core curriculum, really.
1: Well, speaking of curriculum, You currently lead, co-lead, and or teach in multiple leadership programs. I do. Thinking about this, how do you approach assisting others on their own journey?
0: At the New School, so it's an arts management and entrepreneurship program for performing artists or artists related to the performing arts. So actors, directors, musicians, composers, we have some dancer choreographers, filmmakers, We are recruiting for artists who are talented, entrepreneurial, and socially engaged and trying to strengthen their skills in those areas and help them find the ways in which they can really bring those together and do something in the world, not only make a living when they graduate, but also make a difference in the world. At the orientation this past year, There was this moment when one of the students remarked, it's extraordinary because we're each so different. And it's like you've created a program where we can each go on our own path. And I said, that's right. And unlike much of the experience of getting a conservatory degree where you're one of X number of musicians that plays that instrument, one of the great things about this program in bringing together artists across a number of disciplines who each have very different ambitions in terms of what they want to do in the world is that we had to quite intentionally create a program that would not box them in and turn them into generic arts administrators, but just the opposite, try to take what was distinctive about each of them and encourage them on their own path. So that I think there's a way you do that in the curriculum, but it's also just a philosophy or a notion that we're trying to avoid a kind of pigeonholing them in any way. And I think in general, that's got to be part of it, which is encouraging people to look inside to find most of the answers, that it's probably, yeah, there's some skill building, but much of the work is observing and seeing an individual's strengths, and helping to cultivate or foster those, asking good questions. But it's not about this idea that you can march through a certain series of courses and come out the other side a leader. I came up in that era in which, at the point at which you realize like, oh yeah, I'm probably not going to have a Broadway acting career, so I'll become an arts administrator. And that notion that you should then stop with the acting or whatever your practice is, your artistic practice, and that you'll be entirely satisfied simply by being the development associate at a major cultural institution, that that's going to satisfy all of that need that you had before to act or be otherwise creatively engaged. Some people do find, I think, that they really love that work and it's as creative to them as anything else. But in this program, we were really trying to say, we don't want you to stop your art form. So no matter what this program is for people who know, I want to continue to be an artist, but I want to gain some additional skills and knowledge. And even at Banff, where some people are in arts administration roles, we're trying to encourage them to get back in touch with their creative practice in a sense, and to remember what that was about and or to make time for that. I believe there's a way of being in the world that is an artistic way of being in the world, and you don't have to be spending your days being paid as a professional artist for that to be a meaningful approach to life, to work, and so being able to combine that with skills in business or skills in community organizing or skills in leadership, which you teach, is a great thing because I think we're actually going to have individuals graduating from the new school program who will go out into the world. Some of them will start arts enterprises. Some of them may take on existing arts organizations. And some of them, I think, are just going to go out in the world and create Awesome things beyond the arts in every other way that really just respond to their particular values, their beliefs about what's important in society. And we should all be so lucky to have someone encourage us at some point to think about that and to dare to start our own business. I wish when I was much, much, much younger that somebody had encouraged me to think about starting my own thing. It didn't occur to me. And it's still something that I've never done. Maybe I will at some point. I feel really fortunate that I've really deeply enjoyed every job I've had for the last 25, I don't know, plus years that I've been working in the arts. I've jumped all over the place, you know, different cities, different parts of the arts and culture sector, different jobs. I guess a generalist to a great extent The continued possibility of trying on new things is a great privilege. I try to encourage anyone who comes to me for career advice to say there's no straight line and whatever idea you have in your head of what a career should look like, just try to let go of that and follow your heart, follow the opportunities that come your way, follow the questions that come your way, follow your curiosities. My income has sometimes gone from, you know, something quite decent, you know, to the point when I think my annual income was like $14,000 or something. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I've really, I really declined from where I was at one point. And yet I have no regrets about the various jumping off of the sure thing to try something new. I guess that really relates back to this ongoing professional development. It's the notion of wanting to renew and continue to be relevant in the world in a way. Artist's lives are structured around gigs. We know we're in this gig economy now. I had a pretty sure thing or what felt like it when I was at the Mellon Foundation. And Likely could have stayed there for quite a long time and had a rather comfortable life. I'm really glad I jumped off and had to hustle. Uh, I've really, ever since then, felt like I've been kind of hustling to make my way forward. And I feel like I'm learning a really essential skill that's going to become more important over the next two decades when you think about the jobs that are going to go away and the. Demands on many of us to look around, see what's missing, see what sorts of skills are needed, and make ourselves valuable in some way. Last summer, when I started on this path, it was also just peering ahead and thinking I think more and more people are going to need people who just know how to go into rooms with people who can't get along or don't want to talk or who need to get some kind of work done but who are sitting across the table with one another with fundamentally different values. And yet we've still got to get something done. We've got to fix this community. We've got to fix this company. We've got to fix this neighborhood or school or whatever it is. And what would it be to be able to be one of those people who can sit in that room and help? And I don't assume that I'm there yet. I think this is a process of learning over a long period of time. And I feel fortunate to get the chance to, to practice and try to keep getting better at it.
1: What advice would you have for people who say, all right, I can't do all of those things at the same time. Where should I start?
0: When I first started, I went and talked with a few people who I knew were doing their own professional development work You were one of them. There were a few others. I knew people in my network who tended to care about these sorts of things and got a lot of recommendations. Which courses do you know people have done? Take any particular topic area, let's say hard conversations around race. There's a whole area of coursework in this. I talked with several people to say, what do you know about this program, that program? Do you know anyone who's been through this or that? And I also had certain Constraints in terms of time and all of that. So, I think just talk with people who've been through these programs ahead of time and start with the thing that scares you. Start with the thing that you know you're probably lacking in. I had felt myself sitting and standing in rooms, feeling increasingly uncomfortable about how to have conversations around race. I knew that that was an area where I needed to improve my capacities to be present and not harmful. Then it was a matter of, okay, there are various courses out there. Some of them are going to really throw you off the deep end (laughs) potentially. And are you ready for that? Some of them, you know, have different approaches. Are you somebody that would rather be at home with a video and a notebook or somebody that would rather be in a room with 10 other people doing a face to face exercise of some kind, right? And those are going to be two very different experiences, and people learn differently that way.
1: I'll toss it to you for closing thoughts, unless we want to pick up another topic before we close.
0: Ultimately, you know, you should just go in and like, I mean, this should really not be more than like 15 minutes or something. Like, it's just, you're just going to get like one sentence on each of these things. Am right? I? Yeah. I
1: don't know. <laughs> How much editing do you think I'm going to do this? It's going to be just choppy sentences. I know I feel like it's so dis- Especially
0: because I, re- I speak in sentences that are like three minutes long. I realized at one point I'm like, okay, you've, you've now been speaking for two minutes without breathing. That's not going to be helpful when Tim goes to edit.
1: Let me toss you a question about the Truth and Reconciliation program. So, Diane, I want to circle back to what was number two on your list. Mm-hmm. The Truth and Reconciliation program at Banff, they have an amazing... Indigenous Leadership Program. And every time I look at the booklet, I think there's so many different programs and workshops that I want to take. Tell us about the Truth and Reconciliation Program that you went through. What was that like?
0: It was extraordinary, really transformative in many ways. And I felt it was important to take it in large part because I was working on the Cultural Leadership Program here and the context of Truth and Reconciliation and the calls to action are so ever-present in Canada at the moment, and cultural institutions in particular are among those who are really being called to respond, that I felt I needed to understand that context in order to really have any sort of integrity in working in the cultural leadership program. It's essentially a program that brings together both Indigenous and non-Indigenous individuals to go through a process over the course of a week of first truth. You get a profound and deep experience of understanding the cultural genocide that happened in Canada and making a connection between that and your own sort of history in relationship to that Story and your own relationship to trauma. And then over the course of the week, you really move eventually to the point of making your own commitments to what they call the calls to action. And there's a booklet with hundreds of calls to action. Individuals and organizations are being asked to take those seriously and to work side-by-side with non-Indigenous people are being asked to work side-by-side with Indigenous people to try to advance the rights that were lost over time because of the cultural genocide that happened. It was incredibly moving. It's a dark, dark history. We have, of course, our own history in the United States. It's Embarrassing the extent to which we have not begun to have the kinds of awarenesses in the U.S. about our own history and the fact that here in Canada land acknowledgments are done everywhere. In the U.S., you know, maybe once a year or twice a year, I'll be in a room where someone will do a land acknowledgement. Much less grappling with these tragedies and histories that are so problematic and thinking about what it means today to be not a performative ally, but a real ally, and working to improve rights, conditions, et cetera, for indigenous peoples. And so it's a critically important program. Banff is becoming, I think, the gold standard in this kind of work training globally. I know people are coming to study in their programs. And they're also exporting them to other places as well. So I felt really fortunate to be able to take the course. I'd highly recommend, certainly to anyone in Canada, to take the program. And I'm hopeful that this sort of work is going to start happening in the U.S. as well. One of the most beautiful things about that program is that, philosophically, there's an idea that truth and reconciliation happens when Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples come together to talk, and the generosity and kindness of the Indigenous facilitators and participants on these programs, their strength and capacity to be in the room with non-Indigenous people going through these programs, I find extraordinary. It's a humbling Experience to sit in these rooms and learn this way of being present with one another. And it reminds me a bit when I did the Patty Dye course, there's a section of it in which they talk about the necessity to recognize your incompetence, having conscious incompetence, which they call it. So often when We embark on these journeys of self-improvement, let's say, in the areas of gaining cultural competencies, right? That there's a tendency to want to get as quickly as possible to the stage of mastery or seeming mastery. We don't want to sit with the uncomfortable feeling of, oh, yeah, before I didn't realize I was actually harming people in the way that I was behaving in certain things I was saying or the ways I was being in certain contexts or rooms. Now I'm aware of it, and that's really uncomfortable, so I want to get as quickly as possible to being able to, in a sense, perform a kind of competent way of being in the room. I know the words to use. I know what not to say. I And people can really quickly gain, I think, the kind of five or six back pocket Phrases that they can whip out. And yet, over and over again in these programs, I've encountered this idea of actually, no, you need to stop and sit in that space of conscious incompetence. It's awkward. It's messy. It's where you don't know. It's where you continue to grapple. It's where you have to say a thing and then maybe apologize for it and trust that the people in the room will go. Thanks for apologizing. Let's move on. And really do that work over time so that it's not really about do I have the five or six phrases that will make me appear woke and et etc. But have I learned how to really be humble and stay humble and recognize that for quite a long time I will need to be quite conscious and conscientious in this arena, it may be years before I have real unconscious competence, right? Where you can just be in a room and comfortably be with people and do better, let's say, and do better.
1: I think this is where my own personal meditation practice has been useful Mm. when I'm sitting with the uncomfortable Right, or I'm recognizing something is uncomfortable, I'm not sure why, or this is uncomfortable, I'm not sure why. I need to just sit with this for a little bit by myself to start to tease it apart so that I can then figure out what to do with it besides just this is uncomfortable, I'm not sure why, and then you quickly get beyond this thing, right, but but actually just sitting with it, and meditation, my meditative practice has has given me a tool to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, it's a great tool for that. I think the arts also we are good at ambiguity. We are good at the unresolved and what's that negative capability and things like that, right? (laughs) Negative
1: capability? Yeah. I have negative capabilities in a lot of (laughs) lot of areas of life. We're
0: gonna go look that up. But I think that so um I think that there's a way in which the arts can also be a really effective tool for helping people get comfortable with these sorts of things. So yeah, it's good.
1: So as we start to land the plane. I want to get your closing thoughts on the topic of investing in self, personal, professional development.
0: When I first met my husband, he came to visit me in New York and came to my apartment and I had, I don't know, a couple thousand books or something. And there, there are a good number of them that might fall into that category of like self-help book. Right. And he looked at those shelves and he was like, interesting. And you know, I thought, oh my gosh, I've just exposed, you know, like that I'm a complete (laughs) neurotic mess to this man. In a way, I think I have, much of my adult life anyway, been on a quest to be better. You know, it's at the heart of the aesthetics and beauty class that I was trying to teach in ethics. How can we be better? How can we Do the right thing, show up as better human beings in relationship to one another. And I think I have continued to work at it because I recognize the many ways in which I'm not great, you know, in which I need to work on myself, right? We live in times where I think many of us are going to have to show up as better. We all have different ways of going about those improvements. For some, it's Reading a book. For some, it's taking a course. For some, it might be a religious practice, a spiritual practice of some kind, combinations of these. I was excited. I was just reviewing papers for a management conference that's coming up. I was asked to review the abstracts, and there were a couple that were about like spirituality in the workplace. And I know this is not a new thing. It's been going on probably the last couple of decades, a growing interest in this, but I'm excited by the possibility. That we can show up at work and think about what it means to be a better human being in that context and that there's growing consciousness that human development requires time and attention and sometimes coursework and yay for the companies that might actually invest in this sort of thing. I really do hope you'll do that year-long course with your team at Fractured Atlas and for those like me who didn't have that opportunity through an institution, yeah, find the time to do it for yourself. I'm so grateful I did.
1: Diane, it's always a pleasure. It's spending time with you, getting to work with you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thanks, Tim. And sorry for the five-minute sentences. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, now that you said that, like, um, this, now I've got to leave him in.